Good evening, everyone. I hope you uh, enjoyed the first of many Spanish uh, sporting victories this week, this afternoon. I know one of you did. It was a relatively easy uh, <laughs> match this afternoon, wasn't it, uh, compared to um, uh, that one right at the beginning. I can't remember who those two players were, but the one that went over three, three days worth of play, that was, seemed to be very hard work. And sometimes it feels like hard going and very hard work for us in church, doesn't it? Despite all our good intentions, it can feel like we're wading through treacle or nailing blamange to the ceiling. It feels like two steps forward or one, um, and one step back. And how would you feel if you heard that there were people in the church who were deliberately making life difficult for others? Would it make you feel anger? Well, anger is an emotion that we see here in Nehemiah chapter 5. But the first thing that I want you to notice is the complete absence of something. The complete absence of the sound of cement mixtures, uh, cement mixture, mixing. The smell of fresh mortar mix and the sound of laborers at work. Not a single brick is laid in order to rebuild the wall that, um, of Jerusalem here in chapter 5. But in chapter 4 and verse 6, we saw that the wall had already reached half, half height because those willing volunteers we were talking about a couple of weeks ago were working with all their hearts. They were motoring along. In chapter 5, however, the whole rebuilding project has come to a grinding halt. The work is stopped. So here in chapter 5, we have a problem, a solution to put it right, and a motivation to do so. So let's start with the problem. What was the problem? Why had the building work stopped? Was it external opposition? The work of the terrible three, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab. No, not here. External opposition, uh, which quite often comes not just from those whose beliefs are completely different from our, our own, but sometimes from those whose beliefs are very similar, but maybe feel threatened by the strength of our convictions. External opposition can be fruitful. Just look at the church in communist China a few years back when I was at university. The CU invited a theatre company to, to, give some, uh, uh, to present some plays about the persecution of uh, Christians there. And we thought their situation was desperate. How would they ever get out of this situation? How would the church even survive? And now China, of course, has the fastest growing church in the world, probably. In Little Shelford, in the village I used to live in, in Cambridgeshire, there was, there was great opposition to the church in the, middle of vicarage, in, in the middle of the village. There was uh, complaints to the vicar about the parking. There was complaints about the Ascension Day service we led for the primary school. There was complaints about uh, uh, the church putting forward so many candidates for the governorships of the uh, school. And there were secular candidates being put off against us and in general in the elections at the primary school. It all became a fairly polarized community. There were many Sanballats and Tobias and Little Shelford who would have preferred that church to remain a small worshipping community of about 15 people, one service on a Sunday. Instead, after about nine years, and about nine years after um, a team of 25 people from St. Andrew the Great went there, uh, it had a Sunday school of 130 children and three services on a Sunday. But it perhaps wouldn't have reached that size if it hadn't faced some of that external opposition. It can be helpful, unpleasant, but helpful, because it can force believers to pray to pray the kind of prayer that Nehemiah prayed in, in chapter 1 and to get focused on God's vision for that particular place. 
where opposition leads to prayer, it is infinitely and eternally helpful. However, the cause of this problem in Nehemiah chapter 5 is not Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. The cause is made plain in verse 1. Verse 1 says, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. So here the problem was the Jewish brothers themselves. It was them who was treating other Jewish people badly. And that kind of opposition is never helpful. Sambalat and the rest couldn't stop the work in chapter 4, but as soon as there is internal strife in chapter 5, the whole project comes to a halt. Work on the walls, the good work of the people, the witness of the church, if you like, the teaching, the building up of the church, it all comes to a grinding halt because of internal opposition. So let's have a look at this more closely. What was going on at the beginning of chapter 5? Well, verse 2 says, Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. You see, they were hungry. The economy was falling apart. Robin Peston was on the telly every single night. It was the credit crunch of 444 B.C. No doubt, partly because of the opposition of the neighbours, it was difficult to trade. And many more people had returned to the land, so there's more people trying to feed, uh, feed off the land, which perhaps had been neglected during the long period of exile as well, and it couldn't cope. Perhaps it was because the people were so enthusiastic about rebuilding the walls that they were neglecting their vegetable patches and they weren't producing the food. Perhaps it was just bad weather that year. We don't know. But whatever happened, the economic collapse was causing hunger. And not only the men, but tellingly their wives as well, turned up to protest here in verse 1. And the impact of this credit crunch was that they were, firstly, they were getting into debt. You see, they had mortgaged their fields, their vineyards and their homes to buy food during the famine. You can see that in verse 4. They had mortgaged their means of livelihood. You know what that's like. It's like when you're playing Monopoly and you have to uh, give up your green or your yellow set where you've got your hotels just because you made the careless mistake of landing on Park Lane or Mayfair as you were going around. You have to give up the wonderful means of income that the yellow and greens are. But secondly, there were still taxes to pay here, verse 4. And that burden was getting ever higher. King Artaxerxes, do you remember him? He was the good king who had sent them all back from exile, had sent Nehemiah to come back and rebuild the walls. But he still demanded taxes from the people. He still had a court to keep in luxury. And it was the people, like the Jews, living around Jerusalem, who had to pay for that. And if that wasn't enough, if they were defaulting on their debts, not only were their lands and their houses repossessed, the law allowed the owner of the debt to repossess their sons and their daughters as well. So it's a form of slavery. If you couldn't pay your debts, first you gave up your land, then the house you lived in. If you still couldn't pay, you gave up your, gave up your daughters, and they became wives or domestic servants. If even then you were still in dire straits, you finally gave up your sons, and they were made to work the fields that the landlords had accumulated. Now, it may not be quite so bad as that now, but if you apply for a mortgage at the moment, then you'll be charged double the rates that I was paying a few years ago. And the setup fees will be about four times as much as I paid six years ago. And yet the base rate remains at 0.5%. It's what's going on. It's a usury in, in, in a modern way. That old-fashioned word meaning they're taking the mickey. They're exploiting us. 
And there are people in this church who've had to accept in the last year or so lower salaries or reduced hours rather than being made redundant. And on the radio last week, there was talk of uh, introducing an intern's rate of pay for those people who are trying to gain work experience for only £2.50 an hour. That's less than half the minimum wage. And there was another radio program talking about the, the, the domestic servants of diplomats living in this country who are protected by the diplomatic immunity from all the employment laws that would normally apply to people who work here. And people were desperately trying to escape from these employers. So we're not so very different in 2010, are we? Human nature hasn't changed that much. Times are hard and there's always somebody willing to try and take advantage from us, to, make excessive, uh, to charge excessive rates of interest or pay their workers the least amount of money. And on top of that, there's always taxes to pay too. But I guess we can understand that in a way. It's almost what we expect in the dog-eat-dog -dog world. Charles Dickens said, the first rule of business is this, do other men, for they would do you. It's subtle. Do other men, for they would do you. If it had been, been just those facts along, alone, I don't think that the Jews would have dared to complain. Least of all to the king's representative, that was Nehemiah, the governor. But this pain is different. This is exploitation where it hurts. And verse 5 spells it out. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. We are of the same flesh and blood, the Jews said. Our sons are as good as theirs, and yet we are exploited. Our children are taken into slavery, and we are made powerless by our very own Jewish brothers. This was the exploitation within the chosen people of the church. If you like, this was exploitation within the church, the people of God. And that was bad, because it was against everything they stood for. Firstly, because a great part, as we talked about two weeks ago, is their national identity, is that they are redeemed people. Verse 5 takes us right back to Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1 again. Maybe turn back to chapter 1 and take a look at verse 10, where it says, They, that is the people of Israel, are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. You see, these people had already been redeemed twice by God. Firstly, when they were released from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt, and that's the action of God that Nehemiah was remembering in chapter 1. But secondly, when God moved Cyrus, King Cyrus, to allow the return from exile, and even allowed some wealthy Jews to buy back uh, the, uh, some of their brothers from their Gentile neighbours, and they were brought back, as uh, chapter 5 and verse 8 uh, mentions. And yet here in Nehemiah, these doubly redeemed people were in slavery again. And this time to their Jewish brothers, their own flesh and blood. You see, it's complete denial of the gospel of redemption. God hadn't redeemed his people simply for selfish people within the people of God, simply to take people back into slavery again. It was against the very spirit of the redemption that God offers, not to mention being exploitation of the poor, which the law also condemned. You see, that was the problem. And that is the problem today, when church members forget their obligations towards others, members of the body. But you say, I don't think there's any uh, lone sharks operating within this church. We don't see money exchanging hands in dodgy circumstances in the meeting place over coffee, unless Philip Durbin is running the bookstall of some kind of cover operation. I'm not sure. 
But as far as I'm aware, there is no one being held a slave or being taken advantage of in that way by another member of this church. But, and here's the but, are there people suffering financial hardship right now? Yes. Are there people who've left well-paid jobs uh, because they want to serve God in some way? Yes. Are there people who have been sent from here to the mission field who still lack funds for their work? Yes, there are. And of course we know that there are many fellow Christians suffering in poverty all around the world in different countries. And yet most of us, and here I include myself, have money sat in the building society account earning 0.5% interest or whatever it is that the the banks pay us so generously these days. Well, you say to me, and I like to say to myself, but I might need it sometime soon. Or that 0.5% will make all the difference to my income. Well, it's not the same as usury, is it? But we as Christians, we've heard the Sermon on the Mount, which actually made requirements of the law much harder than the law ever required. Not easier. And how much more ought we to respond to the God who redeemed us by sending his own son to shed his blood and to die on the cross on our behalf so that we could be set free, not from slavery, but from slavery to sin and to live that resurrection life in Christ. You see, we have been redeemed. We have been saved. And yet we're all, in many ways, potentially withholding funds from those who are in need within the church or from local evangelism or from building churches in in other countries. And all because we think we need that 0.5%. You see, this line of thinking got me thinking about what we could do as a church, about microfinance schemes and increasing our mission budget and risking all on creating new congregations in line with our 2020 vision and financing them well and being generous to those congregations. And do you know what? Suddenly, church in my mind doesn't feel hard work anymore. It feels exciting. It feels like we're moving forward. It feels like we have vision, as Nehemiah had in chapter 2. A vision born of weeping and prayer and fasting before the Lord. Now, I know that some of you have got hold of this already and you already live this way. There are people who've been amazingly generous and given sacrificially, uh, for example, to the work of the parish assistants. And where would we, been, uh, would we have been without Alex and Joe and their work over the last couple of years? I know of people who've given up their houses so that people can move in and live there for a while. I know other people who lend their cars to others within the church. So there's people here who are doing great things. And of course, there's Beeson as well, which is working within the city to help alleviate poverty. And we thank God and praise him for these wonderful people. But let more of us join their ranks. Let more of us get behind them and offer what we have for the work of the kingdom. You say, steady on, Mark. It's all a bit scary, isn't it? And yes, it is. I'm scared. It scares me too. But really, it's just New Testament Christianity, isn't it? You only have to look at Acts 2 to be able to see that. And your alternative, perhaps, is simply a denial of the gospel. And that's the problem they had in Nehemiah 5. And perhaps it's the problem we have today too. So what's the solution? Well, when Nehemiah saw what was going on in verse 6, he was not just miffed, he was very angry indeed. But he didn't fly off the handle or go for the typical politician's knee-jerk reaction. He was the governor 
He could have sorted it all out just through a use of his positional power. He could have just lorded it over them and told them what to do. But instead, we know that wasn't his style from chapter 2. So instead, in verse 7, he ponders the problem in his mind. And during that pondering process, perhaps he took out one of those scrolls that Alan was talking about earlier on, and he looked up Leviticus chapter 25 on page 128. You might want to have a look at that just briefly now. Page 128. So there in Leviticus 25, which Nehemiah would have been very familiar with, he would have read about the year of Jubilee there from verses 8, when the land which had been bought from a brother Jew was returned to them after seven years. And in verse 36, he would have read that a Jew should not take interest from a fellow Jew. Yes, the reason is why in verse 38 you'll see, because they have been redeemed out of Egypt by God. And in verse 39, he would have read, If one of your countrymen becomes poor among you and sells himself to you, do not make him work as a slave. He is to be treated as a hired worker or a temporary resident among you. So Leviticus 25 is very clear. And after reading that, what did Nehemiah do? Well, back to Nehemiah again. And in verse 7, we read, that he called an emergency general meeting. So they all gathered in the town square. But it wasn't this meeting that caused the problem, because all we, know that, we all know that meetings are what happens when the work comes to a halt. No, it was not the meeting that caused, solved the problem. No doubt it was the mini-sermon here that Nehemiah preached, and the practical application which he puts before them as well. In verse 9, what you are doing, he said, is not right. Shouldn't you walk in fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? Verse 11, he says, Give back to them immediately their field, vineyards, olive groves and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth parts of the money, grain, new wine and oil. You see, this mini-servant solved the problem because it led to repentance. Verse 12, We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. So the solution was not a meeting. The solution was real, costly, heartfelt repentance in response to God's word. You see, we like to think of ourselves, don't we, as Bible-believing evangelicals, but believing the Bible is genuinely costly. Not just because people like Kant and John Stuart Mill and Nietzsche told us all that we're committing intellectual suicide by believing in God but because true Bible-believing evangelical Christianity hits our pockets, and it hits our pockets big time. Again, I hear you say, steady on, more radical stuff, but this time it's just Acts 4 and 5. And there's a warning here for us, because although in Acts 4 it says, all the believers were one in heart and mind, no one claimed any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Your great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. So that's how they were living there in the first century church. And it's no surprise that in the middle of that, the gospel went out with great power among them. 
But then, of course, we read in chapter 5 about Ananias and Sapphira, who also sold some property, but only pretended to give all the funds to the church. They held some back for themselves. And using the symbolism of Nehemiah, they were shook out from the folds of his cloak because they had not kept his promise. So when we come to say that we are good Bible-believing evangelical Christians, we have to say, wait a minute, are we? Are we so much in love with our Saviour, who redeemed us with his own flesh and blood, that we respond with everything we have? Are we prepared to submit ourselves to his word so that we are changed right down to the murky depths of our pockets? Because if we're not, we dare not make the promise lightly, because we dare not be shaken out of Nehemiah's cloak or carried out of the house as Ananias and Sapphira were in Acts chapter 5. No, the solution to the problem that we have is costly repentance. And that just leaves one more point, which is our motivation. And there can be only one motivation for the repentance that I've alluded to. And we see it behind Nehemiah's own actions. You see, Nehemiah could have only preached the sermon in verses 9 to 11 because of the actions that are described in verses 10 and 14 to 18. So verse 10, Nehemiah, he had lent money to those in need. But it's made clear there that he hadn't charged excessive interest. Verses 14 and 15, he had the right to raise taxes for his own personal comfort. And with his wealth, he could have bought land at knock-down prices in the current market conditions. But he didn't, makes it clear in verse 16. And in verses 17 and 18, he could have claimed a food allowance. And I'm sure he could have flipped his second home and and, uh, arranged for a nice new duck pond as well but he didn't, though his actions are summarised in verse 16. I could have done all these things, Nehemiah says, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that God, like that. I could have done all these things, says Nehemiah, but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. I did not act like that because I loved God and I loved his word. So I ask, do we revere God? Do we love our Lord? Do we recognise the cost at which we have been redeemed? Is our repentance costly right down to our pockets? Will we keep the promise that some of you perhaps are making in your hearts right now as I speak and as I speak to myself? Will we keep the promise? Will we, with those nobles and officials in Nehemiah, say Amen and praise the Lord? and do as we promise. So we've seen we have a problem, a lack of care towards others within the church. The solution is costly repentance, and the motivation is our love for God. And we say amen, and praise the Lord to that. Let's pray. God, we uh, just can't get away from your word and its uh, demands and its deep uh, conviction to all of us. And yet we can't get away from its good news either and the great news of the fact that we have been redeemed and we have been saved by our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And we pray, Lord, that as we meditate upon that fact, our hearts and our minds will be moved to do what is right in your eyes. Amen.